Hello, my friends. This is Jonathan Marks, host of the weekly show called Go to Health. We elevate your life with expert health news you can use. I love sharing with you evidence-based medicine, the science and facts around how we each can become more healthy. Topics such as wellness, exercise, healthy diet, growing older, just to name a few. And we have so much more to share in the coming months. I have lots of connections in the health industry from my 20 years experience in the field, and many of them are happy to come on the show and share their knowledge and expertise with me and you. Our show is growing in popularity and downloads, and I am grateful that our guests and topics on how to improve your health are of value to you. Would you be kind enough to take a moment and write a testimonial about the great information we are bringing you about medicine and healthcare? Your testimonial will be helping many people. First, you'll get a chance to give me feedback on how we're doing, what you like and what you want to see more of. Second, it will help me improve the show as we go forward with your helpful and productive feedback. And third, your testimonial will help other people find the show more easily so that we can educate ourselves on how to elevate our lives with evidence-based health information we can use from recognized health experts around the world. Thank you so much for your support. You can leave us a testimonial at gotohealthmedia.com slash testimonials or just go to the website and click testimonials. Thanks so much. And my wish for you and your loved ones is to go to health. The following program does not offer personal medical advice. Please consult your doctor before using any treatment or product we cover. Welcome to Go to Health Radio with your host, Jonathan Marks. We provide a welcoming environment where experts educate you on important health topics, answer your questions, and provide information from which you can benefit in consultation with your doctor. And now, here is Jonathan Marks. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another show of Go to Health. This is Jonathan Marks. I've been wanting to talk about this topic for a while. We've heard so much about bringing new drugs to market, especially around COVID. I really wanted to share with you the process of clinical trials and to do that with us. And we're going to talk about not only clinical trials, but recruitment and retention and also patient and provider communications. With us today is Joseph Samach. He is the founder and former owner of two companies. One was MediConnect which was a large patient provider communications company. And the second company he founded and ran was called PhoneScreen, which specialized in recruitment, retention, and compliance with clinical trials. So, Joe, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Good. And I will also say that Joe is now the president of a new company called Research Data Support, you can find it at researchdatasupport.com. So, Joe, I want to talk in this first segment about clinical trials. Can you tell us what does a drug go through? What are the processes it goes through to become approved by the Food and Drug Administration from the time it gets kind of formulated till the time it gets approved? What's the process our drugs go through in the U.S.? Well, it's a very long process, and it doesn't start out with humans. It starts out in test tubes. It starts out often in simulations. 
but let's limit this conversation to what happens with human beings. Scientists believe that a compound has, will have some positive effect on a condition. Let's say uh, a vaccine for COVID, or it could be a medication for any, any condition. So how do we find out if it's going to be safe and effective? Because that's what the FDA is looking for. They're looking for safety and efficacy. Mm-hmm. Clinical trials, human studies are broken down into really four phases. There are three phases that are before the drug is issued. And the fourth phase is something called open label. Let's touch upon them and then we'll drill down a little bit deeper. For phase one, you're looking to see if if the drug is safe. So it's given to a very small number of people. These people are considered normal, healthy people. They're not people with a disease that they're looking to study, Hmm. but they're normal people, healthy people, usually college age people. Often these phase one studies will actually pay the participants to participate in these studies. And what they're looking for here is to make sure that the compound does not cause any organ failure. They're, not, they're looking to make sure that there's no kidney failure, liver failure, or, or terrible things like that. If the compound fails that, it stops the studies. The studies are done on this compound. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, you hear about studies where patients, unfortunately, may get sick or sometimes even die. And those are cut short very quickly. But let's say it continues on through phase one. They've discovered that it's safe. They've given these, uh, these compounds to people and no one has reported any kind of adverse events. So that's phase one. Then we go to phase two. Phase two, we're looking to see if it's actually effective. Does it do what the drug is supposed to do? And at this point, we really don't know the dosage. So what you're doing Mm. is you're giving, you might have different people getting some different dosages, but for the most part, you're looking to see if it's effective. Does it work against the placebo? And if it meets certain milestones that are described within the study protocols, every study has their own unique protocols. And then if it meets those those endpoints that they're looking to meet, the uh, study would continue to phase three. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of number of people, phase one might have a very small number of people, maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen. On a phase two study, you'll have a lot more. There'll be hundreds to thousands, depending on the compound. And you mentioned before a placebo. And as I understand it, when this is a, a placebo-controlled trial or a random com- placebo-controlled trial, that's really the, the gold standard in clinical trials, which is the the drug, the active drug is tested against a placebo and part of the populations get the drug and part of the populations get the placebo and the testing population does not know what they're getting and the testers, the researchers don't know either because that can bias the study as well. So when we do these clinical trials in phase two against placebo, it's really double, it's called double blinded and it's random which means exactly what I just said. So I won't repeat it. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Good. So tell me Thank about you. phase three. So phase three has already proved, by the time we get to phase three, we already know that the drug is relatively safe and that it's effective. Now we're trying to understand how much of a dosage do we give different people? Mm. Because typically men 
and women might take different dosage because of their size differences, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So phase three studies take many more people than phase two studies. And phase three studies, often there's multiple stages within a phase two and a phase three study. Mm. So they keep, they learn more. The FDA may want more studies conducted. So the pharmaceutical company has to go back and conduct more studies to get more data. Right. By the time we're in phase three, we know that the product works. We know the product is generally safe. But now more and more people are getting it. Now thousands of people are being tested. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not uncommon to have many hundreds of sites around the country participating in the study. And at the same time, to have sites globally participating in the same study or similar study for the same compound. Now, you went through this process with approximately how many different companies and drugs? Well, in terms of companies, we worked with uh, just under, I think we worked with about 58 different pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. And how many drugs were you a part of? Oh, we did hundreds of compounds and probably over a thousand studies all told uh, in terms of recruitment and retention. We did some phase one studies. I think our our most interesting phase, uh, we did one study that was a phase one study on jet lag, where the uh, study subjects actually boarded a plane in New York City, flew to Paris, checked into a hotel, did not unpack their bags, checked out of the hotel, and went back on the plane. They did not sleep at the hotel. Hmm. They got back on the plane and went back to New York. What was this testing? They were testing a a drug for uh, jet lag. I see. Okay, good. (laughs) Now, how long through phase three, what's the normal time frame for a, a new drug to go through? The study could last 24 to 48 weeks. Mm hmm. It mm-hmm. could last less time. It's very expensive. It's very costly to conduct a clinical trial. And the FDA allows uh, diseases that don't have uh, many people uh, uh, who suffer from this disease who can apply for orphan drug status. Mm-hmm. And then the, the studies can be shortened where they might combine a phase one and a phase two study or a phase two and a phase three study and work with the FDA to design the studies in such a way that they get the appropriate data that will allow both the study to go forward and patients to get the treatments that they need. And in fact, with the COVID vaccines, we did see a blending of phase one and phase two Hmm. and phase two and phase three studies in order to get this vaccine to market quickly because so many people had died. Right. Yeah. Can you, can you compare the speed of how this, the, these COVID drugs came to market versus normally? A compound that leaves phase one could take anywhere from five to 10 years to get through all the studies before it's approved. Mm-hmm. In this instance, we didn't have this many years. So they, they designed the studies where they combined the phase one, the efficacy, uh, the phase one safety with uh, phase two efficacy, they found that people were not getting sick. The the results were very encouraging in in terms of safety and efficacy as well was uh, rather successful. And then they were able to go to a phase two, three study, which took both, which uh, considered the efficacy as well as the dosage standards Mm -hmm. 
And through those uh, methods, they were able to get the, the uh, vaccines out in record time. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're to be commended. I right. was stunned that it was done as quickly and as successfully as it was. Because of the speed with which these COVID medications came to market, do you believe there's a safety issue because there wasn't enough time to really test these? No, I don't think that there's a safety issue at all because the number of people that went through those studies, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, is about 50,000 in uh, one company. And I'm not sure if it was 35 or 50,000 in other companies. Mm-hmm. A lot of people taking the, the study drug. Got it. And, and even after, after it was approved, it granted emergency use, it goes into what's called what we might call the open label phase four, where everybody has access to it. Mm-hmm. And at this point, if I'm not mistaken, over one billion people have received one of the four vaccines that have been approved globally, five vaccines that have been approved globally and um, actually six, including Russia and China. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not hearing about much in the way of adverse events. Mm-hmm. So, and even in phase four, the open label, do, do, is the drug still tracked for adverse events? Absolutely. Um, we had participated in a number of uh, clinical trials that successfully uh, were approved by the FDA so, Joe, once a drug is approved, it's open label, it's out on the market, what kind of follow-up is there for the drug's safety and any kind of adverse effects it may have in the general population? Well, the FDA continues to uh, accumulate any adverse events that patients report. Mm-hmm. And once a drug is um, approved by the FDA and uh, physicians begin to prescribe the drug, and incre- you could imagine an increasing number of patients will start using the drug. And um, there were, I, I can think off the top of my head, um, two, uh, two drugs for different uh, conditions, different indications that were approved. And it was a uh, diabetes drug. And um, unfortunately, after the drug was approved, uh, they discovered that there was some uh, uh, kidney and liver damage from this drug, and the drug was quickly removed from the market, from the shelves. Mm-hmm. But it was only until they got to phase four when a lot of people started uh, experiencing these negative effects. Right. Likewise, another drug that uh, many um, arthritic uh, patients uh, from uh, uh, the turn of the century might remember a drug called Vioxx. Viox was a, a, an excellent drug in terms of the pain relief uh, that our arthritic patients uh, um, could expect. The problem is after about 16, 17 months, patients started having angina and chest pains, and ultimately the drug was pulled off the market. It, it's it's uh, disappointing that they couldn't figure out a way to, to keep it on the market, uh, even if it was used for, say, 12 months and then removed after that from patients. But uh, nevertheless, the open label um, allowed enough patients to use these drugs that found the drugs were not safe enough to keep on the market. So they were pulled. So even after a drug is approved and on the market, it's still uh, watched by authorities to see if there are abnormal or adverse effects that should not be happening. Correct. And depending on the severity of the adverse uh, events, 
Uh, we've all seen the commercials on TV where they list uh, several dozen or several hundred situations on, uh, that you should not take this particular drug. Right. Um, and the labels, all the labeling has to uh, refer to this. So as more as an increasing amount of data right. is accumulated, uh, they, the FDA learns more and then it uh, feeds that information back to the manufacturer and informs them that they may, may need to make changes. Got it. And is it, the, is it the FDA or the CDC that tracks these adverse events or is it the company themselves? The Food and Drug Administration manages the, uh, the adverse events. Okay. And what part, what role did you play, your companies play in these clinical trials? We, um, we were active in the recruitment role and the retention and compliance role. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about what that means. The recruitment role is... Um, the part that uh, uh, an advertisement would appear, television, radio, uh, internet, website, social media, what have you, and uh, a phone number would appear. Mm-hmm. Clinical sites that were conducting studies um, are not in the business of being able to manage a deluge of phone calls. In fact, we, uh, when uh, in our height, we were running, uh, as we're running on the Oprah show, we were taking thousands of calls a minute. Hmm. And we had to be able to not only answer the phone calls, but we had to be able to screen the calls, make sure that the people who were calling were appropriate for the study, make sure that there was a study site close enough for them to not only to go once, but to make sure that they would attend all the sessions because it's a, a drug study is not just going to the study site once. It's mm-hmm. multiple times. Right. So right. patients need to be made clear about what's expected, the communications uh, and the expectations are uh, very clearly set at that point. And once a patient uh, qualifies for the study, we then would schedule them for the visit, the first site visit. Got it. So hold on to your seat, folks. We're at the end of this first segment. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back more with Joseph Samoth. He's the president of Research Data Support, and he'll be talking more about clinical trial recruitment, retention, and compliance. Stay with us. You'll learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Are you looking for a happy lifestyle? Now that's a crazy question, isn't it? Everyone wants to be happy, but we struggle in trying to figure out how to get there. Want help with that? 
Then tune in to Say Yes, Be Happy with Natalie Botros. Find out about the Bon Vivant Girl lifestyle and learn how to enjoy every aspect of life and be happy. Say yes, be happy. Listen live every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel with a replay on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to Jonathan Marks at gotohealthmedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, we're back. This is Jonathan Marks with Joseph Samach. He's the former president of MediConnect and PhoneScreen, both of which are medical communication services and for recruitment and retention and also patient and provider communications. And he's currently the president of Research Data Support. We're talking about clinical trials. And Joe, the topic I wanted to go into more deeply is recruitment, retention, and what you call compliance. Can we talk about those three in turn? When, you t- when we talk about recruitment for clinical trials, how do drug companies recruit? Well, they recruit a number of ways. They, they will ask a, a physician, and a, these are called investigators, principal investigators. They will ask investigators how many uh, patients in their, uh, in their load how might qualify for a particular study. Mm-hmm. And they would get an idea from that. But generally speaking, you have to go to the outside world to, to advertise and let people know that the study exists. And so you might see ads uh, saying, if you're a diabetic over the age of uh, 21, uh, please call this number for, you know, for information about how to participate in a clinical study. Mm-hmm. And you would call that phone number. And now the question is, what happens at when that phone call gets answered? Is it going to voicemail? Is it going to someone who, who says, I'll take your name and number and I'll call you back? Or are you being asked the appropriate questions where you can be on the call once and be done? The questions are answered. You find out if you qualify for the study and then you're sent off to the site for the first appointment. Mm-hmm. So that's the recruitment part. The recruitment is the advertising and getting the subjects, finding out if they meet. Uh, the, you ask them questions over the phone. Um, you obviously do not have them in your presence if, uh, if there's a study and uh, the cutoff date is 60 years old and a person lies to you and says they're 40. 
you, mm-hmm. you, you're not looking at their ID. However, when that patient would walk into the doctor's office, into the investigator's office, and they're asked for the ID, it would show that they were 60, they would be disqualified at that point. And uh, yes, that type of thing happens all the time. Why? <laughs> why would people sign up for a study that they don't qualify for? Because patients uh, sign up for studies because they've been frustrated. They have not found uh, successful treatments for what ails them. Mm-hmm. So there are always there are patients who are suffering terribly and who are looking for a solution, and so they they will try to get involved in a clinical trial. We had a clinical trial for a device that uh, that I remember one patient was uh, constantly uh, trying to get into the study. Unfortunately, the patient had a tremor and they couldn't manage the device. And we knew that patients with a tremor would not be able to manage the device. And therefore we had disqualified, they were disqualified. Mm-hmm. But this patient kept calling back and ultimately got to a site and was disqualified at the site. Mm. Could mm. not see the tremor. So there's recruitment, that's the first stage. Now let's talk about the next stage. Okay, so there's, what I described was initial recruitment. This, these are the screening questions. Once they go into the investigator's office, they're screened further by a a clinical research assistant. Mm -hmm. Once they pass all of that, they can be enrolled into the study. Mm -hmm. Now, once they're enrolled into a study, there are are certain rules that that any protocol has to comply with. Sometimes a study subject, once you're in the study, you're no longer a patient, you're now a study subject. The study subject may have to uh, be at the, at the investigator's site once every four to six weeks for the duration of the study, whether mm-hmm. that's to weigh them or to measure something about them or what have you. And um, there are windows within which these things have to be conducted. So, for example, uh, to make one up, let's say you have to, the subjects have to be seen between four and six weeks each of each visit. And they have to be seen eight times. So that study could last as long as six times eight weeks, 48 mm-hmm. weeks subject. On the other hand, if it's at eight times and they're seen every four weeks, it could also last just 32 weeks. If a study, if a subject is not seen within that window, they will be dropped out of the study. That patient's data, that subject's data will not count for the study except for the safety data. If that person had adverse events, and had reported them in the study. And then they, and they dropped out of the study. The adverse events stay there. But all the successful stuff about how the drug worked for them would not stay there because they did not stay through the end of the study. Now, what's the importance of this time, this time crunch or be, you know, staying within the schedule? Why is that important? Because that's what's defined by the protocol. It Tell may me. have to do with the drug. It may have to do... Uh, it, it could have to do with many different things. These time windows are very important okay. and must be kept. When we, we uh, one of the uh, over-the-counter drugs that we helped bring to market is a drug called Abriva, which is a cold sore medication. Yes, familiar with that. The problem with uh, Abriva, the challenge of succeeding in the recruitment on the study with Abriva is the time that it takes between feeling a uh, the tingle of an eruption on your lip and, and being visually able to see it. A Breva had to be applied during the clinical trial before mm. it was visible. Mm-hmm. So it needed immediate attention. It could not even wait four hours. 
So that's a good example of urgency there that that requires yes. you to comply with to be in the study, right. to be a study subject. Got it. So let's talk about compliance. That's the third thing you talked about. Tell, tell us about compliance and what that means. So compliance is staying within these windows. Compliance is making sure that uh, the, uh, the study subject is taking the study drug as described as appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, there are often surveys, many questionnaires that are asked during the course of a study of study subjects. And these have to be completed on time. And uh, one of the things we often had to do was prod people to do that. Sometimes we had to prod clinics, the investigator clinics, to see the subjects because they would about be about to be dropped out because of missing the window through no fault of the subject, but mm-hmm. through fault of the investigator site. Mm-hmm. So we would track, we not only monitored the subjects, we monitored the sites so that we were able to help them all uh, succeed because it was beneficial for everybody to win. Right. So the success of your company was really, you were part of a, um, an atmosphere of clinical trials. So there were the drug companies themselves which made the drugs, but they weren't necessarily ready to really run clinical trials. How did your company help? What role did your company play? Well, we were able to recruit subjects on time and under budget. Mm-hmm. which is something that very few people uh, have been able to do. In fact, clinical trials still run an average of 10 months late in recruiting subjects for studies. I and guess that, we had the magic glue. And what was your success there? How, how, how were you able to recruit people so effectively compared with what a pharmaceutical company could do? After decades in the patient-to-provider uh, communications uh, industries, um, we knew what patients expected and we understood what healthcare providers expected and we understood how to take the expectations and turn them into actionable uh, efforts. So really facilitating uh, the drug companies in responding in a quick way to the study participants? Well, the drug companies are not themselves running the clinical studies. These are all outsourced. Drug companies cannot run their own studies. They're not allowed to run their own studies. Oh, okay. So they're outsourced to various companies that, that will subcontract elements of the studies to different people. Got it. Our contracts were with the pharmaceutical companies most of the time, and the people that they outsourced the work to were told that they had to work with us. Got it. And so why are pharmaceutical companies not allowed to do their own clinical trials? Bias. Okay. It's really to assure that you get scientifically based results and not yes. biased for what the company the wants to see. The potential bias is too real. It's too close. Yeah. It's too close. If, this, if something is done at arm's length, you have, there's less motivation, less potential. So again, this is another safety issue, a safety uh, regulatory issue that requires companies to hand over their clinical trials so that we know they're not biased by what the company wants to see. Correct. Good. So tell us some stories. What are some interesting stories that you had in your years uh, supporting these clinical trials, either in recruitment or retention or compliance? What what were some difficult stories or challenges that companies have been through that you can share? There was always some humor in the studies, even in the most serious of studies. Mm -hmm. But one that stands out happened to be about uh, 
premature ejaculation. We were, uh, the recruitment was being done on uh, various sports type of broadcast networks. And the goal was to recruit uh, a number of subjects over the course of a weekend. I believe the number that we needed to recruit was, uh, we were looking for about 36,000 people. Wow. Nationally. And um, we had a problem. It turns out that in um, a site in uh, California, and I won't mention the city, but I do remember it, uh, called us up after the weekend and told us that um, their nine o'clock patient uh, didn't show up. And uh, when they called him up, he knew nothing about the study. And then they told us that the three o'clock patient that day also, the same story. Now, from our perspective, we were billing our clients, the pharmaceutical companies, uh, for the amount of time, amongst other things, that we were spending recruiting people. So it wouldn't look good for us to make up names and just put them into the schedule. Right. And then just charge for that. that we, we weren't about, we would never get another piece of business if we ever did that. Right. So we were kind of concerned. And uh, Tuesday morning, we received another complaint in the morning. The same exact thing happened. And I immediately uh, grabbed project managers uh, and uh, we consulted on this. And what we realized, what we soon discovered is that the phone number for all three of those people was the same originating phone number. In other words, somebody would call and say, I have, I'm Joe and scheduled for nine o'clock and I'm Jonathan and scheduled for 10 o'clock and call for somebody else at 11 o'clock. But that person was using the same phone number to call for each of those purported friends. Hmm. Oh, we found, we found about 15 of his friends were scheduled at this clinic unbeknownst to those 15 friends. Oh, so, so this one person was signing up friends for the study. That's right. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we began to be curious about the study because um, th this particular study uh, created some new insight for us because typically uh, people wouldn't call repeatedly to participate in a study. And we discovered that not only did this happen with this particular study and this particular person, but there were people who were calling 30 and 40 times over the course of the weekend for the study for different reasons. So, Joe, uh, let's talk about a retention challenge that you've had. What's it like to keep people in a study and what did you learn about that? Well, for the longest time, um, we were able to uh, retain people in study by giving them nice gifts. So there was a period of time we, uh, we, we did a, an, uh, a lot of uh, work with uh, female incontinence. And um, uh, it's not a topic we discovered. The first thing we discovered about female incontinence is that often their spouses did not know that, that they were incontinent, which was a surprise. Mm -hmm. um, and um, in order to retain um, some of uh, these subjects, uh, the uh, 
part of the study, we were giving out uh, silk scarves from Como, Italy, which cost a couple of hundred dollars each. That's pretty nice. Uh, yeah, the FDI, FDA also thought that. And ultimately, <laughs> um, about, I think it was 1999, the FDA uh, forbade uh, the giving of gifts uh, and clinical trials. And in fact, at the same time, they forbade printing the drug name on pens and giving out uh, post-it notes with drug names, all that disappeared at the same time, mm. primarily because in the clinical trial arena, we were being rather generous with, mm-hmm. the, uh, with the gifts to retain subjects into the mm-hmm. studies. Mm-hmm. But, there's, but there's other ways uh, in terms of retention. There, there are so many ways. One story that, that comes to mind is... Um, a study on, uh, it was a female in uh, continent study. And uh, I remember the drug, I won't mention it now. It's a, it's a commonly prescribed medication. And there were, there were hundreds and hundreds of sites all around the country. And we filled the study very quickly, everywhere but one site. One site, and that site was in Miami. And we, we, didn't know what to do. And, and we had conference calls with the uh, pharmaceutical company with, you know, all these people were trying to figure out what to do. And the ad agency said um, for merely a quarter of a million dollars, they could run some more advertising and we would get the rest of the su- study subjects. What we did in our facility is I, I pulled part of the team aside and project manager and asked them what was unique about the Miami site. Because these were the people who were actually taking the phone calls for the site, and they were intimately familiar with the people calling and sites. Mm-hmm. And one of my staffers said that the people in Miami don't want to travel. I asked for a deeper explanation. And uh, it turns out, after we looked at the data, that people in Miami don't want to travel more than five miles to go to their doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And having grown up in New York City, where everything is downstairs, if you live in a high rise in Manhattan, your supermarket's downstairs, your Walgreens is downstairs, everything is downstairs. You don't have to travel very far for your immediate necessities in New York City. And often the people in Miami are retired New Yorkers. Hmm. (laughs) Our solution to completing the study was offering the people a ride in a bus. We would pick them up and drive them. We wouldn't, a bus would pick them up, drive them from the house to the doctor's office and back from the doctor's office to their house. We charged something like $25,000 for that, uh, for our, our ability to recruit for the rest of the people in the study. It took us about five minutes to finish the study. We already knew who qualified and had opted out because of mileage. And we just drilled down to that piece of data and called those people back and they were enrolled and the study completed. Great, good. So you have to get um, creative in in making sure that people are retained in the study so that you can get study results. Very creative. In fact, we didn't always staff with uh, nurses or healthcare professionals. Um, And I mentioned the Abriva study earlier 
where we actually did have to staff with nurses because that timeline was so short, we didn't have the opportunity to turn around and find healthcare professionals in all those instances. Got it. Okay, well, stick with us, folks. We're going to go on to the third segment of our show and take a short break. We're talking with Joe Samach. He's the president of Research Data Support, and he's been involved in clinical trials, recruitment, retention, and compliance, as well as patient-provider communications. And on our last segment, we're going to really focus on patient-provider communications and how that can be improved. Stay with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Are you looking for a happy lifestyle? Now that's a crazy question, isn't it? Everyone wants to be happy, but we struggle in trying to figure out how to get there. Want help with that? Then tune in to Say Yes, Be Happy with Natalie Botros. Find out about the Bon Vivant Girl lifestyle and learn how to enjoy every aspect of life and be happy. Say yes, be happy. Listen live every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel with a replay on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to Jonathan Marks at gotohealthmedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
Okay, everybody, welcome back to our third segment with Joseph Samech of Research Data Support. And um, Joe, we wanted to talk in this third segment about patient-provider communications and what's expected on both sides um, so that we can talk about what you've done, what some of the problems are. Let's talk about what doctors expect when you come to the office, let's say, for the first time. So uh, they'll expect that you'll arrive earlier than your regular, if your appointment's at 10 o'clock, they might ask you to arrive a half hour early mm-hmm. to make sure that they have your health insurance correctly and that your, your information correctly and whatever information you didn't complete. So they expect that you'll arrive early for that. Mm-hmm. Other things they might expect is that when you walk in, you might have a list of all your medications. What they certainly don't expect and don't want to see, although they pretty much expected nowadays is a is a list of uh, res- printed out Google responses for questions that they have. Mm-hmm. Doctors don't expect, don't want that, but they expect that. Um, they expect that you're going to be, as a patient, that you're going to be compliant. So, for example, uh, a patient uh, uh, with, that's, that has high blood pressure, the uh, physician might ask that patient to take their blood pressure every day at the same time and record that information. And when the patient comes back the next time, there's an expectation on the physician's side that that patient will have done it, if not every day, at least most of the time, Mm -hmm. some Mm -hmm. kind of record. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the examples. Got it. And what is it that patients expect from doctors? Let's talk about Uh, the other side of that. Well, Patients expect that um, when a physician says, I'll have your lab results in a week, that the lab results don't take two weeks to get back to them. Mm -hmm. Then when a promise is made by the the practice that it's complied with by the practice, patients are very flexible. We discovered that we've taken many millions of uh, phone calls from patients and they're very flexible, but they do want to know when they can expect to hear back. And if you tell them that you'll hear back in a half an hour and you don't hear back for two days, they, they could be understandably upset. Right, right. So, so in specific practices that you've worked in, give me an example of a problem you've solved, let's say in terms of getting back to a patient. So the first problem that we experience in handling uh, medical practice communications is every single physician would say, call me if it's an emergency. Well, that's all well and good, but an emergency for you and an emergency for me, I guarantee you will be two different things. Mm -hmm. So for example, with pediatricians, what an emergency, uh, an emergent call, when we say emergency for the purposes of this conversation, we're not talking about taking a kid to an emergency room, but rather hearing back from the, the provider, whether during hours or after hours. So what is considered an urgent matter? Let's use that term instead of emergency. What's an urgent matter? Mm-hmm. Some pediatricians might say the patient has over 101 fever. Contact us. Other practices might say 103 fever. Contact us. As long as there's something that can be measured, then you can provide the expected level of service to both the practice and the patient. So mm-hmm. from the, the practice expectation is, and just limit this conversation to this child with fever, does the child have over 101 or whatever that threshold measure is? 
Right. And if the answer is no, okay, we'll take that message and we'll hold that for the office tomorrow. They'll know about it, but nobody needs to be bothered. But if the kid is over 101, we want to be communicating with a physician in this instance. Now, what's expected of the patient once they've submitted that message to the physician? How long should it take the physician to get back? If I had a kid with a high fever, I'd want it to be within the half hour. <laughs> uh, whatever the practice expectation is. Okay. One of our uh, clients was the University of Chicago uh, DCAM clinics. That's Dietrich's West Center for Advanced Medicine. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the problems in that clinic was uh, when we came along was that residents were taking the first call. So the residents um, started out responding promptly, but there was no protocol. There was no expectation of time response when we came into the picture. And so sometimes patients would get a call back. Sometimes they wouldn't. And pretty much every day there was a complaint. And uh, we met with the manager of all the practices at DCAM, and we developed a protocol. And that was that if there was an urgent call, the expectation was that the resident would have to call the patient back within half an hour. At the same time, the patient was informed when they made their initial call that they should call us back if they didn't receive a call within a half an hour. Mm. Actually, we would give them an extra 15 minutes to contact the doctor. So we say, if you don't hear back in 45 minutes, please call us and let us know it's a second call. When the second call came in, we would not only reach out to the resident, but we would inform the resident that the attending physician is being contacted as well as the practice manager. And Mm -hmm. as a resident, you don't want to meet with the practice manager in the morning when you didn't do your job the night before. Mm -hmm. So problem was solved very quickly. Right. It took us less than a week to solve the problem for the whole hospital. Got it. The whole hospital. This is a hospital. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that, that, has, that, that has a big effect. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Good. And, and it was an easy solution, but mm-hmm. it was all about communications and expectations and fulfilling those expectations. Can you, do you have another example of fulfilling patient expectations and you have a, how you solved the problem? One of our biggest challenges was, uh, believe it or not, my own kids, pediatricians. There were two partners and um, one partner, let's call her Barb, uh, would take a patient that had 101 fever or above. Her partner, Ben, let's call him Ben. Yeah, that, that would be a good name for him. Uh, ben would only take uh, calls for patients that had 104 and above. So it was not uncommon for patients to call at, after hours, ask who was on call, and when they heard that Ben was on call, they would hang up because the kid was obviously not sick enough to be seen by Ben. <laughs> but when Barb was on call, they never hung up. Mm. Interesting. So that was a challenge to manage two partners that had different rules. So, how did, so explain to me, how did the patients know? Were they, did, they, did they learn what, what the parameters were for each Barb and Ben or what happened? Over time, they, they knew. 
And uh, they would call and ask who was on call tonight. And if we said Barb, they would say, great, my name is this and my child's name is that. And please call us up because this is what's going on. And when Ben was, uh, was on call, they would just hang up. Interesting, was- because they knew it wasn't 104 degrees yet and uh, they shouldn't Correct. call. Correct. Got it. Okay. Now, I'm not stating that one is right and one is wrong. But, boy, I would have loved if they could have agreed on this. <laughs> Got it. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about, so you've, you've come up with all these solutions for different kinds and sizes of health practices from the individual practice to the large hospital. What's research data support doing these days? What kind of projects have you done and what kind of projects are you thinking about? So um, research data support uh, fulfills an area that I call micro apps. Um, People like to have these big apps that are all encompassing, that do so many things. But we found that there are so many needs that are really niche needs. For example, early on, uh, we developed something called the COVID symptom, uh, symptom tracker. And what this did, it allowed users who downloaded the app to keep track of their symptoms, their temperature, their uh, whatever their symptoms were. So if they were, if they were getting sick, and this was in the early days before testing was available everywhere. Um, so we allowed people to keep track of uh, their symptoms. Um, we developed something called Easy Docs, which is a way for medical practices to have special forms that uh, could be filled in uh, through an iPhone or through a computer, through the internet, and provide the data to these uh, doctors. So these, again, it's a micro app, just filling in the gaps. Got it. Uh, another thing that we're, uh, we've been, we're developing now is a, a medication list. As, uh, as when I go to physicians, every physician wants to know the medications I have. And having a piece of paper in your wallet is much more cumbersome and can get kind of messy over time. Mm-hmm. And you might forget your wallet and you might lose that piece of paper. So having an easy to access medication list uh, that also includes your supplements. Physicians like that. As a, in fact, I saw a new physician just last week and he was pleased when I took my phone out, I just showed him my list. And he said, oh, this is great. Right. Now you're so, showing this to him on your phone, but that doesn't, that's not a way to give it to him, right? Somehow you get to correct. send it to him. I just had it on my phone. I could have sent it to him, but he, he didn't need it. He already had my meds. He wanted to see what supplements I was taking in this particular instance. And he's able to see them at a glance. Got it. And not only see the supplements I was taking, but the, the former supplements and also other medications that I no longer was prescribed. Got it. You're working on this app if people are interested in having a place to record their prescriptions, not only for themselves, but for their family, their kids. Um, how can they let you know of their interest in this upcoming app? Well, you can go to our website at uh, researchdatasupport.com slash microapps, M-I-C-R-O-A-P-P-S. Okay, researchdatasupport.com slash micro and then apps, A-P-P-S. Great. So that's a nice way for people to let you know that they're interested in this app. We'll help you with development. Do you do a lot of surveys, Joe, to find out what people want in an app? Yes, we're always uh, surveying people because we always need to know what people are thinking, but people thinking changes over time. So it's important to stay on top of it. And mm-hmm. we get insight into many different things by asking the right questions. 
Great. And of course, you've got, I'm sure, the software and the ability to ask all sorts of questions you want so that you can find out what people really want, don't you? Yes, we do. Good. Yes, we do. We have a robust uh, software suite. Great. Good. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Joe, today. We've been talking with Joseph Samach of Research Data Support. He's been involved in the clinical trials industry for quite a number of years and in research and in compliance and recruitment and retention. And I really wanted to cover clinical trials today, Joe, and all the work that's being done there so that everybody can understand how we get our medicines that are safe and effective and um, can be used to actually cure the diseases or the the, the states that we're in today. Thanks so much, Joe. It's been a great education for us, and uh, we'll hope to hear from you again. Take care. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank All you. right. And for you, my listening audience, take care of yourselves. Hope you stay healthy and uh, tune back in next week for another show of Go to Health. And as we say, we are here to elevate your life with expert health news you can use. Take care, everybody. Have a good week. Thank you for tuning in this week to go to health radio be sure to join jonathan marks and another health expert next wednesday at 3 p.m eastern time and 12 noon pacific time on the voice america variety channel you can also catch the program on your favorite podcast platform until our next show be sure to visit us on the web at go to and elevate your life